I thought you were dead. Sun out of your eyes and be yourself. Heard you were dead. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. That man's dead back then. It was worse than dead. He must be dead. Is this a dead man, Duck? How long do you think Liv King's gonna be like talked about? Probably like another week. Yeah, he's he's shot already. People yeah. have yeah, come... he might flare up again in like six months with like a okay. comeback attempt, but that's it. Alright. Cause uh have you guys ever seen the movie Jeremiah Johnson? Robert no. Redford? No. One of the best like westerns to come out. That isn't a spaghetti western. But it's about this guy, and his name is uh Liver Eating Johnson. and uh so i remembered i remembered liver eating johnson like he hung out with i don't know if he hung out with i know i definitely know he hung out with doc holiday um he's like a real mountain man his wife was killed by the legend is his wife was killed by the crow nation and uh so he went on a rampage killing all the crows and eating their livers oh (laughs) i wonder if if you eat human liver, will you actually get the results that Liver King got with steroids? I think it's... you just become uh, diabetic immediately. <laughs> yeah, that's where your soul lives. Your sugar soul. <laughs> Instant diabetes if you eat a human liver. Liver but is, anyway... is woman's food because it has iron. You know, you get like oh, the menstruation cycles. Yes, they need that. That's a... Men don't need liver. It only... Sick men. I love liver though. So, liver pate is so good. Oh yeah, mm. liver worst. Liver worst, another good one. That's not actually yeah. liver. Yeah, well, it's maybe some li- <laughs> bit of liver in there. Okay, <laughs> okay, maybe. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So I bought this book, Crow Killer, and I didn't really look into like. I mean, this is supposed to be like the book to read if you want to learn about, uh, you know, liver eating Johnson. But uh, I open up to the introduction. It's like. None of this stuff in this book is true. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to start a nonfiction book. It's very telling, too, with yeah. the uh, current narrative of Liver King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm kind of like, I want to read through this book, and then I want to get... Because apparently a lot of the uh, new information about Liver Eaton Johnson came out in the past, like, 20 years. Because people have been talking to, like, the Crow Nation and their, like, oral history... And like, nah, we were buds with that dude. He he wasn't eating our livers. <laughs> <laughs> what a twist. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. were eating other people's livers all together. Yeah. He was, he was friends with us. I never heard Liver King talk until I saw the apology. I, I only knew of him. I just, mm-hmm. like, what is that fucking Muppet going to say? <laughs> what, what fucking Santa Claus coming to, to town looking motherfucker <laughs> yeah. on the Hulk's body going to say to me, you know? How do you sound like that when you look like this? Well, it's Couldn't... they just it's that you're that happens to your voice when you become an influencer. Yeah. <laughs> just become soft in the voice? Yeah, you're just a soft man. If you use a circle light in front of your face that long, it affects your voice. But he has like a yeah. mild speech <laughs> impediment. And like when you put that much care into your look and uh, and your physical delivery, you could fix that as, as an adult. I uh, think the fact that he didn't tells you all you need to know though. There. Amazing, yeah. amazing point. Yes. See, but but Tom, maybe you reach that height of physical 
fitness and that voice happens because look at mike tyson that dude's voice is fucked i've been watching a lot of ronnie coleman videos and his voice is just like that <laughs> you ever watch ronnie coleman videos i have no idea that ain't is. nothing but a peanut <laughs> so much weight but now he's basically dead from the waist down because he's just deadlift so much mm. which makes him kind of my hero <laughs> tom i think you got to get into those uh deadlifting videos where they're like on a skateboard and then they've got shit in their mouth and like they're like juggling um you know game cubes have you ever seen those no i haven't Ah, oh, it's just this guy that like loads up with like random shit all over his body and just like does a squat but he's always like on a skateboard or like on a some weird thing that he's standing on we gotta have mike do that when his knee is totally healed up mm-hmm. <laughs> just <laughs> take him to the gym and be like you forgot your skateboard sonny <laughs> yeah you need to lift weights on the board yeah all right starting the show <clears throat> let's start the show welcome to the liver king podcast I'm Liver no. King. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Let's start the show. Hi, Let's welcome to Rose Show. Mortem. It's Rose Mortem, I said. My name is Tom. You belong uh, here. I'm a show. You don't belong here. Travis. I'm Connor. Welcome. Yippee Kaye. Uh look. We have experienced a lot of things mm-hmm. last week. It's really? True. Yeah, between Liver King and then Cullen not recording. So we had to use the audio Ooh, reference. Yeah. So that mad was, at that guy. That I was love my him fault. So much. That was my fault. It was absolutely. I'm, we're so happy you were on the show. It was absolutely my fault. I didn't tell him to record. I want him to come back all the time. Yeah. I always want him I just want to hear show. his voice. I love that man. Yeah. But, <laughs> all right. So, Travis, this is obviously not Cullen's fault. I knew it wouldn't be Cullen's. He's too smart. Yeah. He's too smart. As as for you, you would tell him not to roll. Dude, we're doing a history show, but I'm in the future. That's how smart <laughs> it, I am. It gets confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, how's everyone week? Yeah, Tom, how was your week? I just had an awful day. <laughs> just had a really awful day. So I'm going to focus on that. What about the six before it? <laughs> I don't remember. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Today, uh, something happened with a client. Some plugin I was using just like destroyed audio. Something that doesn't, it's like removes breaths. It's from Waves, a uh, very hated plugin company, but God, they, they make mm. everything. Um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I proofed some audio and then sent it out, and they were like, what the fuck is this? And I had to go, ah. Just one of those days. Um, I also received a new monitor distributor for my monitors, and I took it took about a half hour to get it in the old rack unit here. In the pro audio world, a rack is 19 inches, and it's just something you squeeze into, and it's real yeah, difficult. Yeah, double D, double D. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But you got to squeeze. Like, I don't know, where, where mine is situated. I basically have to shove my head in the corner like a fucking ostrich, and... uh do that for 20 minutes to put the thing in so i do that and uh i plug it in and run it and it's fucking broken great uh so i tell the guy who i bought it from look i'm returning this you fucking cocksucker there's like i i wrote out everything 
uh, very aggressively to let him know I was not there to fuck around. I I took a note from DMX's page and I started my my eBay message with, "Do you think this is a game? Do you think this is a fucking game?" (laughs) So anyway, he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. Send it back." I take it back to the post office. It costs almost just as much as the unit to to ship it. it. (laughs) Yeah. So now I'm out like almost a hundred bucks for nothing. Dude, that's why we should have kept the Pony Express. You could have, Tom, you could have killed a bird with a stone, and you could have been on your pony riding. You could have been riding your favorite dogs. And you know where I would have ridden them? Into the town of Huntington, (laughs) from which I live adjacent to, in which they've decided to block off an entire block for this month to put up a giant plastic Christmas tree that no one gives a fuck about. The people want it. They demand it. They demand it. Yeah. So you know who doesn't demand it? The guy who programs the lights for the Department <laughs> of Transportation who doesn't readjust them. No. So uh, what usually is a three to four minute journey now takes 25 fucking minutes <laughs> twice a day for me. God, I'm ready to die every holiday season and it seems like something new every time. Thank you, Department of Transportation. You've done quite a service. I'm glad all the fucking garbage trucks blew up this week, which also happened in Huntington. That's true. We lost, what, what? 70% of our fleet? Yeah. Yeah. Which, what do you mean? I blew up. They just oh, fucking they just blew exploded. Up. Like the whole warehouse got on fire. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. I live a quarter mile down the road, and it almost broke my fucking house. Like, it was like a boom? It was eight or six, like, massive booms. Yeah. Shit. Like a GTA, like, oh, one truck went on fire. Now we're going to wait two minutes, and then it blows up. Yeah. Dude, that's like Huntington's 9-11 right there. Yeah, well, speaking that we all eat and look like trash. (laughs) Now there's nothing to take us away. Losing our trash trucks means a lot. (laughs) So I guess more than some things, it wasn't just a bad day. It was a bad week. It was a bad week. Travis, did you have a better week? Oh, my week was okay. I got. I see. I was uh, actually the opposite of you, Tom. I was getting very jolly and festive. Put up my Christmas tree. Um, I have a tradition. I buy something called a pornament, which is a uh, ornament that uh, involves a naughty activity. Mm. This year it- was two gingerbread, a man and a ginger lady, going at it. Oh, on my tree. What position? Doggus. Oh. Yeah. Getting flat. frisky. Yeah. Very flat. Uh, flat. So yeah, I was just uh, I was trying doggy to doggy style. <laughs> yeah. A very flat doggy. Um so yeah, I was just trying to be very festive. Uh I've got I I have a fake tree because I'm not lugging a real tree into an apartment building. So I Why just not? light a whole bunch of candles that smell like a real tree. And your brain's like, hey, is that a real tree? Or is that Candace? I used to be a, a real tree purist and then realized, like, man, it's fucking stupid cleaning up needles every three days and watering this bullshit for a month. Fake trees are just better. I hate, true. I, I hate fake trees because I used to have to put mine together as a kid. Mm. My mom, like, we had, we stopped getting real trees maybe when I was, like, seven. And we had this one tree. It was just massive. Yeah, and and it was one of the old school it. ones yeah. where it was, like, the hooks where I had to put... Like twelve branches on each rung, all the oh, way the yeah. fuck up for no, seven not feet. Fun. Um, and then there was another one we had where the lights died on it. You know where they put the lights yeah. on there already? Yeah. And the lights died, and my mom was like, "Now you gotta take off those lights." I was like, "Why don't we just leave them and put on more lights?" Yeah. 
But I had to cut them all out. Use a string. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most grisly looking men I ever met in my life. I thought when I was in Wales, this guy looked like he was in like the SAS or something. He just had like no eye and like just. And I asked him one day, I was like, hey, man, like, do you mind if I ask how you lost your eye? And he was like. Well, I was pulling apart a fake tree. Went right into my eye socket. <laughs> <laughs> I feel better than that guy. Oh, that's horrifying. Yeah. What a sucker. Yeah. The fucking spirit of Christmas. Yeah. Connor, how's your spirit of trash blowing up in Christmas going? Uh, I got into the patriotic spirit by waking up at 9 a.m. and going to a bar to watch the U.S. lose in the world's game of football. But it's still fun. That's I drink ver- an entire pitcher by myself at 10 a.m. It's you know, good way to start a Saturday. It's pretty American. Yeah. yeah. To lose at the World Cup. To lose at the World Cup, be arrogant about it the whole way as yeah. fans. Like, that's that's just the American way. What did yeah, you drink a- in that pitcher? Uh, Sam Adams Winter Lager. Wow, it's a hefty pitcher. Ooh, that's a yeah. good breakfast beer. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, for the first time in a while, Lizzie and I just day drink, which we don't normally do. Oh, I miss it. Yeah, Love stayed a good out, day drink. Stayed out until the, the late afternoon, drinking beers and... Watching soccer. See, I don't know. It must be something about our our circumcised American penises because the men's team sucks, but the women's team is like, oh, well, we're going to win every year. Yeah. Well, you see what they do with women in other parts of the world? That's true. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even even think those players are allowed in Qatar. It's probably like, yeah, exactly. It's it's probably the, you know, the U.S. and like some European countries. It's the the, U.S. against Europe and a little bit of Brazil. I don't think the, do the Brazil girls even want to play soccer. No, they have a good team. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, Marta yeah. is like the greatest women's soccer player of all time. What does that mean? I don't know. Right? She's Brazilian. I could, so I could beat her? <laughs> I'm going to let you handle that one. <laughs> yeah, Tom, do a bicycle kick right now. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I have a very low basement, okay? <laughs> okay it's fucking, not feasible. I can't bop, Okay. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about the World Cup of Warfare again. Oh, with, uh, with a muddy, muddy game of World War One and Douglas Haig as the captain of the. Yeah. Of the, uh, they're not allies. What do they call them? They're the allies. They call them the allies in World War One. Yeah, as the allies against the Central Powers. I thought they were uh, called Central the goodies. Mm, maybe in like British like pub slang. Definitely <laughs> British pub slang right there. <laughs> How the goodies do today? <laughs> so, you know how they always said, like, uh, you know, it's the Allies and the Axis or the Allies and the Central Power. Did Germans call themselves the Allies? I don't think so. I th- I could be wrong. I believe they were just, like, <laughs> the Central Powers. And then in the Axis, it was just it was basically just Germany. And yeah. so there was no need to, like, come up with a name for it. Because even you know- Italy, by the end, is, like... Germany South. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird when you're you're fighting against like the world calls them the Allies and you're not the Allies. Yeah, we're fighting against <laughs> the Alliance. But yeah. I mean, the Allies were truly like there's a lot of them. You know, yeah, a lot of tiny little countries working together. Yeah, but mostly the British Empire hmm. and the French. Anyway, let's get back into it. So we left off uh, in the mud of Passchendaele, and if you want to go. Get queasy and nauseous. Go listen to us talk with Colin about all the horrific natures of that battle again. I was thinking about that a lot this week. Every time I saw like a little pool of water yeah. popped in my head. Yeah, with the hair in the drain. I'm like, 
That could have been me. That's gross. Could have been me if I was born 100 years prior. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was like, wow, that's really interesting that there's all that fat that's in my bathtub. I slip on it all the time. You shaving pretty hard? Yeah, I shave. On? I shave hard, dude. Uh, Manscaped.com. Get we don't shave. have an indoor. No. Shave don't. the fat. No, shave the fat off of your body with Manscaped.com. <laughs> Just don't drown in it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't put your face down near the sinkhole. It's not good. So following the horrors of Passchendaele, Haig was, for the first time, uh, severely at risk of being sacked or fired from his job as British commander. The last two years had produced the two most horrific and deadly battles in all of British military history, and something was needed to change. So the prime ministers of Britain, France, and Italy created a Supreme War Council that, although initially it had no actual power, it was starting to encroach upon Haig's authority and threaten his position. Now, if you remember, the Prime Minister of, Engl- uh, of England at the time is Lloyd George. And Lloyd George did not like Haig, especially after Passchendaele. He was extremely critical of Haig the whole way and was agitating for a way of getting rid of him, either by firing him or reassigning him. Uh, he couldn't really fire him uh, directly. So the reassigning thing was more likely. So one idea he came up with was sending him to Italy to help fight on the Italian front, and then it would allow him to appoint a new Western Front commander. That sucks, and they send you another battle, right? That like, <laughs> yeah. It's not because they think you can win it. It's just because go to the less they, important. They think one. you're gonna lose if, this one. It doesn't matter if we lose that one. Yeah. Like, go <laughs> fight over in Italy. It's like, shit. What are you really fighting for? <laughs> We're fighting you already for hate pasta. the Italians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then the other way they could do it was actually um, the French method for this was promoting him above the position. So basically, uh, Joseph Joffre, the French commander throughout the war, he was the one who was replaced by Nivelle. The way they replaced him is they promoted him to a job where he had no authority. Like they created a new job that's like, this is a better one. And now you don't get to do anything. You are now the lunch manager. Yeah. <laughs> you have no responsibilities. I feel Please like that is just keep drinking also, brandy. That's also like a very 21st century corporate move, too. Oh, yeah. 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 It's like coming up with um, like a, an executive role that doesn't, that sounds like something, but isn't actually anything. The it's producer. Too much tape. <laughs> yeah. it's, oh, you're a producer on a movie? Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's basically what it was. He was the director, and they were like, just be a producer. I've heard of Japanese companies doing this with like mid tier employees. It's fascinating. They give them jobs that are so boring, they're incentivized to quit out of boredom, mm. which I think is phenomenal. would never work on me. Yeah, because I could hang out and be bored. Yeah, you're paying me, I'm hanging out. Yeah, yeah they're like, no, you, you get the same pay, but instead of working at your desk on these files, you go in here and you don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> you sit in this broom closet. <laughs> yeah, and I think that you know, the Japanese are hard on themselves and they want to be productive so after like a week or two of just sitting at a desk not not even having a pen to fuck around with yeah they're not allowed to use their phones nothing oh they're so they're like, just like sitting they're there. just sitting there. oh mm, that would drive me nuts mm. yeah well it would be a good job for some in <laughs> fact i think we should open up those job opportunities for a lot of people who think they're good at stuff yes especially yes. in the creative field yeah. that'd be a good way to do it uh however lloyd george was not going to be able to get rid of haig that easy haig's deliverance was just around the corner um, oh, also, the two of them, when they were meeting after Passchendaele, got into, like, a big shouting argument, and apparently they were each accusing the other 
of planning negative stories in the press about the other one. Both of them were doing that, and both of them were accusing the other one of doing it and getting mad at each other for accusing each other of it. Awesome. Well, that, is some, that is some World War One Mean Girls shit. Oh, it's so Mean Girls. Like, most of the book I read was a lot of, like, and then Haig said this to his secretary, and then so-and-so's secretary, and it's all these, like, manservants. Like, that was the name of the position. Like, running around, like, gossiping to each other. Kind of like a, a more extreme version of... Uh... My wife and I's relationship with the Brita filter. <laughs> uh, so it's we're still in November of 1917. Uh, Passchendaele is still ongoing, but kind of you know in its winding down phase. Now, Haig, to his credit, all along had been advocating for more and more tanks ever since the vehicles had first been used. The problem with the tanks was multiple. Uh, one was low numbers. Port, uh, they weren't great over terrain, which kind of seems counterintuitive to us now, where tanks are like the all-terrain military vehicle. Right. But back then, they were not good at traversing crazy terrain. And they were unreliable. So even if they worked in the initial push, the moment you take the German trench, they're probably going to break down, and then you don't have the mechanics to like fix them. Just get a lot of mechanics killed that way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I think I feel like we mentioned this on one of the other episodes, but that's why they carried that big bushel of hay on the tanks. So yeah, they could to, drop to them in fill the in the trench. Yeah, they were not all terrain. They were like like a rock. Oh, like yeah. a rock. Let me get my hay out, and so I can get over this little lump. Yeah, and it's like it needed flat land. So if it was even just a little hilly, it's like ooh, it's not going to go up the hill. If it's a downhill, sure, it can handle it, but it'll uphill. even go faster. Yeah, <laughs> it might go. It might go the pace of a jogging guy, not a walking person, because yeah. <laughs> that's how slow they are. Also, they're moving at the pace of a walking person. Yeah, it's kind of barely the point, I guess. It's just the protection from machine guns. That's what it's all about. So Haig finally would get his wish for the mass use of tanks at the planned Battle of Cambrai. Uh, the plans for this had begun in September and was a radically new way to conduct a battle on the Western Front. There would be no weeks-long bombardment preceding the assault. Instead, it would be a surprise attack, all starting at the same moment. And even more remarkable is the Royal Flying Corps would for the first time be flying direct air support missions. So rather than just being artillery spotters, now they've got machine guns, bombs that aren't hand grenades, and can actually provide support to soldiers on the ground. Did they have multiple men in these... Uh, initial airplanes? Uh, some of them had maybe two guys. Yeah. I mean, I'm not expecting more yeah. than two. I'm just saying, like, one guy to man. Like, what's the uh, Indiana Jones and uh, The Last Crusade? You have Sean Connery blasting. Oh, yeah. He's in the yeah, gutter the, seat. Yeah, exactly. The gutter seat. That's what I'm talking yeah. about. Do you have gutter seat action? You got that? That's starting up now. Okay. Um, Tom, that was a cool that was a cool movie reference, bro, but uh the mummy. <laughs> Remember bad. Brendan Fraser? He's shooting the sandman. <laughs> yeah, that was much cooler. Yep. I yeah. agree. Cooler one. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that's all all this is being planned for the Battle of Cambrai. And at dawn on November twentieth, it all goes off. A thousand guns erupt without any warning, just pounding one area of German trenches followed up by smoke to mask the advance, and then a creeping barrage that's timed to perfection with hundreds and hundreds of tanks bursting out of the forest, attacking the German positions. Bursting out of the forest at four miles per hour. 
Oh yeah, like they can hear them, and they're like, "There's a rumbling." Run! It's run. like I see a glint of metal in that forest, and then ten minutes later, it's like I think it's one of those tank things. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that, yeah, that is one of those tanks. Yeah, and then I, an I hour and a half it. later, it's rolling over your machine gun. Nest. It's coming right for us. <laughs> All of this combined to lead to a tremendous success, if by Western Front standards. So it's not going to sound great, but by the measure of Western Front, it's a huge success. They advance as far as five miles on the first day. Parts of the main German defensive line are seized, and the vital city of Cambrai, where it took it, the battle took its name, is within reach. And this is like a crossroads for a lot of the German supply lines. Uh, this was combined arms warfare coming into practice. This is basically World War II tactics in miniature on the Western Front. Now, this had been what was called a quiet front. So all along this huge line of trenches running from Switzerland to Belgium, they're just quiet fronts is what they're called, where it's like each side is dug in and no one's really attacking anyone. And mm -hmm. so you just that's you kind of just hang out there and live in the trench without fear of anything other than a sniper awesome and so that's where they plan this attack and it's even more effective because of that the germans just were not ready i thought it was all quiet oh on the western front interesting um travis that's a cool movie reference but um <laughs> the mummy <laughs> very true tom T touchy touchy very yep. true yeah like remember this when it just rained blood that's yep. cool very cool. In the mummy. <laughs> in the, in mummy. the mummy. So this success at Cambrai was greeted with wild enthusiasm in the Allied press. Uh, church bells are rung out in England, which apparently it hadn't happened since the beginning of the war. Uh, I don't know what the significance of this is. I think it's like Americans launching off fire rock, firecrackers and fireworks and stuff. It's going yippee. They're ringing the bells, celebrating mm. the victory at Cambrai. Bong, uh, bong, this, bong, 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 bong. That's probably what it sounded like. Yeah. That's what British bells sound like, right? <laughs> bong, not not bong, good. Bong. Yeah. If it's anything like they sing, not good. Terrible. <laughs> and this uh, victory basically secures Haig's position as commander-in-chief. Um, Lloyd George was still trying to replace him, but public sentiment had kind of turned against it. And there was really no adequate replacement. That's really what it came down to. There was no one... That they could point to and be like, that guy makes sense to take over for Haig. There's just, it's just bereft of that. Hmm. So, Haig's, are there any suggestions or? There's this guy, um, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, is this guy Robertson, but he's not viewed as like a battlefield commander. And then all of the actual like guys on the ground doing stuff are just too junior in rank to be considered. Right. And it's just kind of, this is what they got. They should have seen if any rich guy wanted to, like, pay for that job, yeah. as the British had a tradition of doing. Well, I think Haig was the rich guy that paid for the job. Well, I'm saying there's got <laughs> to be somewhere guy. else. There's got to be a slightly richer guy, you yeah. know, someone who's willing to pay the extra thousand. That's true. That's true. I'm thinking they should have had the one sole survivor of the Liverpool chums. <laughs> yeah. Or the Grumsby pals. Like, that guy should be in yeah. charge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what Lloyd George was able to do, however, is he is able to apply sufficient pressure to basically force Haig to clean house at general headquarters, replacing many of his loyal yes-men with uh, just new faces. So, like, I think Haig's, one of his secretaries gets fired. Um, a few of, like, the liaison people are fired and reorganized. So a lot of reorganization, but the man at the top will stay the same. 
So Cambrai, this huge success, everyone's living on cloud nine. They think, oh, maybe the end really is right around the corner. But a week later, the Germans counterattack and undid everything that the British were able to do in those in that week over the next like month. <sighs> so they took the hot five miles. Yeah. So they had like they were like pushing to Cambrai, pushing to Cambrai, and then finally the Germans were like, "All right, we have enough men in reserves. Launch a counterattack," and it. Am- very quickly, the whole all of the positions were reversed. Cambrai did show the Allies that with sufficient planning and materiel, especially tanks, they could break through the German lines in places. So this is kind of just like a proof of concept, even if the follow-up doesn't go as smoothly as they were hoping. And Germany realized after Cambrai that this idea of quiet fronts is gone. The idea that you can weaken parts of the line to strengthen other parts is... That's that was 1914 and 15. That's not going to be the way going forward. So this they're desperate now to bring more troops over from the east. We must mm. have noisy fronts. Yes, very loud have... industrial fronts. They must be very loud. <laughs> or else I cannot sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> so 1917 had been basically the most disastrous year of the war for the allies up to this point. We talked about the French mutinies last week, the mud of Passchendaele. What we did not mention is that, um, do you remember a couple episodes ago I mentioned the Battle of the Isonzo, and it was the fifth Battle of the Isonzo? Yeah, that was in the Alps, right? Yeah, in the Alps. Well, in 1917, there's something called the Battle of Corporetto. The other name is the that it gets is the 14th battle of the Isonzo and it's called the battle of Corporato because something finally changes and it's a German led army breaking through the Italian front and like basically the Italians are full scale retreat at this point. So it's not going well there. So we also didn't mention that Russia has gone into revolution. Oh yes. That had happened earlier in the year. Our little uh, friend IV Lenin. V.I. Vladimir Uliot Uliot. Yeah, he's still not even like on the scene at this point. He's probably still on the train back. Yeah. Or he was, no, he's in Moscow by this point, but still not like Russia still had the chance of not becoming the Soviet Union at this point, but they had already signed the peace treaties with Germany. So yeah. Nice. War. When we talked about uh, old Vlad, Vladdy Daddy, it was very much an opportunist sneaking in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, the. the he didn't start the revolution. It was event eventually going to happen, especially because of how poorly the Russians were doing in, and managed in World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's not going well. Basically, Germany now can focus all of their efforts on the Western Front. So the outlook is dim for 1918. Basically, the question is, are the Americans going to arrive in enough time and with enough troops to prevent the Western Front from collapsing against a rejuvenated German army. So that's the question on everyone's mind. Unlike the previous two years, the Allies did not have uh, grand schemes for an offensive in 1918. Haig had some ideas about renewing the attack in Passchendaele again, but was kind of shot down from that. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah right? <laughs> like, maybe don't do that right again. <laughs> Yeah, no thanks. Let's do a different one. That's kind of like when, you know, you see a band that you really kind of didn't want to go see the band of, and then they come out for, like, the what is now expected encore, because every band has to do the encore. Yeah. But then they do another song on top of that, you know? It's like, yeah, that... Yeah. You know, with the amount of times I've 
wanted to kill myself at a show. I don't know how I'm still here. <laughs> I've just seen that too many times. <laughs> the double encore? Or just like people who don't play music that's any good. And you want to, you're waiting, you're waiting for the good next music. band or you just, and you can't get out of the venue and it's like the middle of fucking February. So you can't hang out in the smoking section. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That instant death. Passchendaele. Put me there. Passchendaele. Um, Rather be at Passchendaele. Yeah. Yeah. So the allies instead, they're kind of seeking more of just a hold the line attitude for 1918. Most of them are guessing that the war might end sometime in 1920, most likely. You know, because they, at this point, they're kind of thinking, all right, once the Americans get here, we'll have such a manpower advantage that we can just slowly beat the Germans back, and it'll probably take another two years or so. Right. Do they know that the back-to-back -back world champions are coming to town? Yes. The Americans <laughs> had declared war in April, so they knew they were coming, but basically... So when the Americans declared war... I think they had the world's, like, somewhere in between, like, 20th and 30th largest army at the time. It was, like, smaller than, like, Guatemala's or something crazy like that. Right. Well, Guatemala doesn't count because they're all army. They're all, they're all they're the army. They're just army people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, like, the U.S. Army was 100,000 dudes at when they declared war. So they needed to basically train up 2 million men in a single year and then get them across the Atlantic. So that's what the American. So that's why there, there's this idea of buying time. It's because not only does the American army have to get there, the Americans have to make an army. They we don't have one in 1914, basically. <laughs> Look, so weird. Thank God for the crop known as corn, or else this would have never went down. Yeah, yeah. You gotta feed these boys you quick. Feed these boys <laughs> some hot garbage that's yeah. gonna keep them coming back. <laughs> yeah, like the American army had just lost like. Not lost, but like fought to a draw Pancho Villa. Like that's what the American army is capable of. Sad. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that they're coming, most of everyone, the French, the Germans and the British are like, well, the Americans can get here and then they can just sit in a trench and die while we do all the actual work because that's all they're going to be good for. Oh, man, that's so funny. Yeah, that is fun. Do you yeah. think what uh, a bad contingency plan <laughs> no. in a lot of ways, but it's it worked out so. Do you think the Lusitania was actually a Hague's ship? Wait, what? Was it sinking oh, like of the Lusitania? Oh, like he purposely sank? It. Yeah. It, was that like a Hague yacht that he was like, oh, no. No, it's more likely a Churchill thing because he uh, was the one. There's room. There's a conspiracy theory that Churchill is the reason that there were weapons on the Lusitania when there shouldn't have been. And that's yeah. why it was sunk by the Germans. But how are we'll the Germans going to know? I don't know. Yeah, like, take a guess. Well, I think, no, because what they would do in the early U-boat stuff is they would surface, mm. and, like, so you'd see the U-boat, and they'd be, they'd kind of, I, I don't think this is exactly how it went, but it's like, they'd be like, do you got any military shit on there? And then if they didn't respond, they're like, probably not, but if they just shot back at him, it's like, time to go, time to sink this boat. Oh. It was a weird, it was a weird time. Imagine being on that boat and like, there's that fucking, you see, it looks like a sea monster coming out. Popping up. Yeah. It just smells like sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't have any, <laughs> I hope we don't have any Bowie knives yeah. on board or, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> hunting gas, rifles. Yeah, gas station knives. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we are prepared to release the curry vest into the water. <laughs> it is very spicy. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that's that's the Allies' plan for 1918, is wait for the American uh, doughboys to get over here, and then they can hold the line while we go on the offensive. However, Haig and other commanders suspected that 1918 might actually be the end of the war. Um, Haig believed the war would end that year, a few others did, and their reason for this is twofold. One, they were wrong about some shit. But they were they were wrong about the why, but right about the conclusion, I guess. If that makes sense. They yeah. got lucky. Yeah. Yeah. And then they were like thinking like, oh, well, the German army is going to quit. So don't worry. Like, I have a feeling they're going to quit in 1918. And then they also thought that um, they knew the Germans just had less material. So their one option to win the war is to win it right now before the Americans can get here. So that means a massive, massive offensive break the Germ- British and French lines, and then win before the Americans can even show up. So that's what Haig was kind of like, that's their only option of winning. So I would bet that they're going to try something like that. And he was right. Well, he was wrong you, about the Germans quitting, but he was right about that. You hmm. aren't addressing the ghost elephant in the room, and that's Napoleon told him. So. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I keep forgetting about that. I keep forgetting he's talking to Napoleon. I wonder if like Frederick the Great spoke to him and like, like talked shit to him. Yeah, <laughs> it's like how dare you take down my empire, you piece of shit! And then, like his sister was like, "I don't want to send that to Douglas." <laughs> yeah, let's change that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Haig is expecting some sort of big offensive in the spring of 1918. He's starting to warn people about it. Um, he spends the winter inspecting the front lines. He feels that everything is under relative control for most of the British front, with the exception of the British Fifth Army, which is led by General Hubert Goff. He is defending 42 miles of the line near uh, Flesquier. I don't know. A French village, let's just say. (laughs) That makes raspberry beer. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) And he recognized that this force is woefully unprepared. Uh, I believe the Fifth Army was in a lot of the fighting in Passchendaele, so they're undermanned. Um, There's no continuous trench position, and even though trenches had kind of slightly gone out of fashion... In 1917, there's still, like, the rear, the last line of defense is still a big fucking trench. It's a lump. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're still, lumps and then you, are still and, in. Yeah, and then you have smaller trench lines, and then it's just shell holes and pillboxes up front. This area doesn't even have that, def- like, last line of defense trench line. It's just pillboxes and machine guns scattered throughout this countryside of France. So not very well defended. You, you, um, know, what's, you know what's kind of crazy is that, like, there were people that survived Passchendaele, and they went on to go fight other things. Yes. <laughs> Insane. It's probably cake, though. There are guys that fought at the Somme, the day one of the Somme, then all of the rest of the Somme, then all of Passchendaele, and then still had to survive 1918 if they wanted to go home. Oh, God. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, so that just kind of brings up this little nugget. So the French had always... Uh, the British kind of were bad about just leaving troops on the line for too long and just like not rotating them in and out enough whereas the french were much more thorough about like in and out off the line but the problem with the french that a big reason why the mutinies happened is because by the end of the battle of verdun every single soldier in the french army had probably spent at least two weeks on the front lines of verdun 
So all the French army had seen this horror, whereas like in the British army, some units might have just never been in the action. It's just the extra brave ones yeah. who yeah. we uh, probably awarded medals to. Yeah. With the hard-boiled, oh, cool. yeah, hard-boiled Canadians brains. and the Anzacs. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a shame your penis doesn't work anymore and your wife looks like Satan <laughs> and uh, you can't hear. Sorry. Yeah, but uh, here's a medal. <laughs> Hell yeah. Sorry, Hell Travis. Yeah. We went outside and smoked Newport cigarettes. Oh, so good. Tasty. That's good for your health. That's lung. That's that prevents against mustard gas. I don't yes. actually Newports were invest inve, invented for mustard gas prevention. Good to Not know. only do I believe it, I'm gonna put it to the test later. <laughs> Start huffing <laughs> mustard gas while ripping a Newport. Yep. Yeah. Very dangerous to eat too much Gouldens. <laughs> My in-laws have so many cleaning products. I will have no problem testing this. Yeah. <laughs> you can definitely mix something up into mustard gas. Yeah. It's just bleach, and then you throw mustard seeds at the bottom. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's all. And you can use the mustard seeds after. Yeah. Yeah. They call it blonde very, mustard. Yeah, very good for pickling. <laughs> uh, shit, where did we leave off? Um, I don't know. I'm leaving that in. For fun. Oh, yes. We were talking about a very stupid war where people move very slowly. Yes, yes. What a lovely war. Um, Yeah, so we're talking about the Fifth Army, led by Goff. Not a great defensive sector. Haig is worried, um, but he's not too worried about this one area because two reasons. One, he thinks that the main German attack is going to come further to the north. Uh, And two... He believes that we have sufficient reinforcements that if they do attack here, we can just easily counterattack. It'll be like Cambrai in reverse. Well, they may have initial gains, but we'll be able to reverse them after a week. So we're going to lose a lot of men, but then we'll bring more men in. Yeah, whatever. It's fine. I didn't know their names anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 Probably half of them are Steven Gerrard. <laughs> <laughs> By March of 1918... It's becoming obvious to everyone um, that Haig's prediction is, might is going to be coming true. Germany is has a huge troop buildup, and it seems like they're going to go on an offensive that they have not done since 1914, basically. Even Verdun, there's like arguments over whether it was a true German offensive or whatever. This is like the, the first time the German army will be going on an all-out attack since August of 1914. And is this, is this, the feeling is that, like, we got to do something? Is that kind of theirs? The idea with Germany is this is our one last shot. Like, they're no, the Allies don't know this at the time, but basically the German society is collapsing at this point. Oh, boy. So, like, the winter before, the winter of 1617 was called the turnip winter in Germany because that's all the people in Germany were eating. All mm. of, like, the actual food is going to the front. Like, basically, oh, the whole country is now just a war machine to win the Western Front, and they're not winning it, So they need, and the people are dying, so basically it's like, we need to win the war, or we risk revolution, we risk our army collapsing, the whole state falling in on itself. It's like, this is our is, last shot. Is this the Ludendorff plan? Uh, I think, yeah, this is Ludendorff. Oh, okay. Is it Ludendorff or Falkenhayn? Ludendorff. It's, Lud- it's Ludendorff and Hindenburg are like the guys in charge at this point. All right. Um, well, also, actually, Germany is collapsing currently. They just were going to uh, yeah, storm the, the, the uh, what was Habsburg it, the... back on the yeah. throne. 
Could be fun. It could be fun. Could be yep. atrocious too. We'll have to see. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they're hoping. Also, they know the Americans are coming, and they're like, we can't. We're just gonna get swamped by Americans if we don't beat the French and British right now. Uh, Higgs in good spirits, though. On March second, he wrote, "Quote." I was only afraid that the enemy would find our front so very strong that he will hesitate to commit his army to the attack. End quote. P.S. I just had a new hammock put up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ten days later, he would add to this saying, quote, he found the spirit splendid and everyone full of confidence. The Americans are disappointing. They are so slow and don't seem to realize the magnitude of the problem. However, Old England is able to run the show herself if our government would only give us more men before the autumn. Oh, shut up. This is just classic Hague. Disparaging foreigners, praising England, and asking for more troops to send into the meat grinder. Yeah, and maybe one day we will talk about the American perspective on this war with Wilson and all that jazz, because he was a piece of shit. Uh, Yeah, he's a real dick. (laughs) Yeah, but... (laughs) <laughs> there was we were it wasn't like we had any real uh hurry to cross that line anyway uh, yeah. you know we don't understand the gravity we're just over there over there over there <laughs> yeah that's what they they had to make what two million troops ready to go or like a million just a lot a million yeah. right so you got a million guys that you have to have learn all these songs yeah in a year it's Forget a lot it. of work it's yeah. a yeah. lot of memorizing and you don't think little Billy from Nebraska really, you know, he's just doing it for a free vacay. You know, he's just been eating corn all his life, and now he's like, oh, look at these grapes. They turn this into beer. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the like, the stereotype of the American soldier in World War One is when they showed up, most of the Europeans were like, who are these giants? Who are these massive, massive men that, where did they come from? Because the Americans just have good diets compared to europe at this point yeah, so it's like, they have it. like six foot 210 pound doughboys. that's where the phrase comes from whereas the french and british are sending like five foot three bantam battalions on into the front oh man see yeah. this is like you can't ask doughboys to be rolling cigarettes <laughs> you know doughboys yeah. need the cigarettes pre-rolled yeah they got big fingers gotta use it they you know they gotta be able to gotta get shoot the trigger, a gun. Yeah. Gotta, gotta, gotta get, get in the, the trigger shoot, guard. The old yeah. shoot loop. <laughs> so the German army, uh, the, the morale for the German army is through the roof. Um, they've been planning for this offensive for months. In Germany, this all this series of battles that we're going to talk about right now is going to be called the Kaiserschlacht, which is the Kaiser's battle, because they know that this is the last chance to save everything for the Kaiser, basically. But you said that their spirits were high as hell. Yeah. So that like they know they're like this is our chance, but we 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 can do it. Wow, we know we can do it. Imagine. We know we know we're the better soldiers. We know we're the better army. This is our chance to prove it once and for all. We're going back on the attack. We've been held back. Like Ludendorff has this crazy thing where he talks about like you know the shield arm of Germany had been holding off the British and French, and like finally we can bring the sword from the east and smash through perfidious Albion. That's what he called the British, which I love. What what do they call them? The Perfidious Albion. It's too mouthy. <laughs> it's it's <Yeah>. good. <laughs> I just call them F slurs or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be a whole series of offensives. Uh, the first on March twenty first, four thirty a.m. An artillery barrage of eight thousand guns opens up on the British Fifth Army's positions without warning. 
It goes on for about five hours, and then it switches to that creeping barrage, and the German army goes over the top once again. This is Operation Michael. 76 divisions of the <laughs> German names? army. What? Sorry, who names these? I don't know. Operation Michael? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. What's your name this one, boys? Uh, Some real scary. Michael. <laughs> really scary. Some real scary. Real yeah. intimidating like. Someone's going to put fear in their bones. Yeah, they need some American branding. Need some yeah. Operation Western Front Storm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Operation Diamond Plate in your fucking asshole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is Operation Michael, though. 76 divisions of the German army climb over the top of the trenches and charge into the British 5th Army. Those 76 divisions outnumber the entire British expeditionary force, just to give you an example of the scale of this coming battle. Mm. Um, they had developed new tactics. Um, this is where the first, like, stormtrooper tactics is what they're called. It's just fire and move tactics that are, like, standard to militaries now. This is, like, one of their first They're just implementations. figuring it out. They're just figuring it this out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous um, story. And they're basically doing like a proto blitzkrieg because the plan is ignore seizing defensive positions, just keep going, just drive as deep into the enemy lines as you can until you find something that cracks, basically. Hmm. So it's like, oh, there's a machine gun nest over there. We'll just run past it. Who gives a fuck? Now you're past it. Now they're surrounded. Just keep going. And the guy who invented the fucking tripod, those things probably went on, was just like, I knew I should have made 360 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> He's at my three o'clock. I, I can't, can't turn around. <laughs> my bullets only shoot this way. Yeah. <laughs> what they wanted to do was get deep into enemy lines, um, expose flanks of the British and French army. And the fifth army is the linchpin between the British and French lines. So basically what they're hoping is they can drive the British and French separate and roll one of both of the armies up. So like if you break through and the British start retreating to the channel, Roll them up to the channel and get them off the continent. If the French crack, you've recreated the, the War of 1870, and now you've taken Paris, basically. So that's what this is all about. It works. Uh, the Fifth Army basically collapses almost immediately. Uh, they're in a panicked retreat. They're in danger of being routed. At various points, they're breaking contact with the French, so the Germans have actually achieved this goal of splitting them apart. And there are even talks in general headquarters in Britain of bringing the entire British line back to the channel ports, which would basically leave open the road to Paris for the Germans. So it's that's not kind of like, well. That's kind of like a, they kind of did that with Dunkirk, right? <laughs> yeah. So basically, yeah, that's that's this is what happened in World War Two. Yeah. This is what the Germans are trying to do in 1918. Right. Uh, in some places, they advance as far as 15 miles and... They get really, really close to seizing the vital crossroads at the French city of Amiens. Half of all of the British army's supplies ran through Amiens, so if they had taken it, basically half the British army would not be getting any resupplies. So, yeah, this is like war-winning shit that's going down with Germany. Well... I mean, supplies like food, right? And things, food, ammunition, soldiers. They got doughboys. They got the doughboys. Yeah. Saying, <laughs> <laughs> and and Amiens is like that's that's almost like um, urban warfare, right? Because they've pushed into a city. Uh, um, they're not in Amiens. They're just pushing towards it. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, there's urban warfare in like the smaller cities at this point because this is just this is much more like open maneuver war compared to the static trench warfare we'd been talking about most of this time. 
Um, basically, the German plan now at this point is like either we can, you know, if we seize Amiens, we've destroyed the British logistics supplies, or they could even basically just hold what they've taken and sue for peace here and say like we've all had enough. Now we are in an advantageous position to negotiate a truce and an armistice. However, it doesn't work out. The offensive just kind of, they advance too far almost. It's like they're suffering from success that they're just like pushing too deeply where they can't resupply their own success. Um, and eventually this attack just kind of peters out, but not after the Germans have seized a huge swath of territory. Uh, the allied casualties were 240,000 men. 300,000 for Germany. That's bad for Germany because they can't replace those men while the Allies can easily replace them. Huh. They just need to find a country that has big boys. Yeah, where's, where's Germany's big boys' friends? Yeah. <laughs> where, mean, you, where can they find big boys? I mean, you could stack Chinese. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if they, didn't, if they weren't fucking around with Africa so much, maybe they have a bunch of big boys from Africa. I don't think that would go well, based on their <laughs> awful views on yeah. everything. Well, well the yeah. British had many of the same views, and they had no problem sending African and Indian troops to battle. That wasn't a problem they had, though. <laughs> That's right. That, That's was, right. <laughs> that was not their problem to tackle. Not their problem, no. So Operation Michael, despite the fact that it prevented uh, the Germans weren't able to achieve like their ultimate objectives, it was the breaking point of the tension that had been building since 1914 between the British and French high command. They never fully trusted one another, and after this offensive basically was running unopposed, um, neither of them were reinforcing the other because they were too afraid of their own position becoming too weak. So, like, the British, when the French asked for help, wouldn't help because they were like, well, if we help you, then we're ex getting ourselves exposed. But you have to come help us. And then the French would go, but then we would be getting exposed. Basically, everyone realizes they need a unified command. The British and French governments come together, and they appoint for the first time, a supreme allied commander, General Ferdinand Foch of the French. So now Haig has a new boss, and he's a Frenchman. Oh, my God. Ooh. Ooh. That's got to sting. <clears throat> yeah, definitely stings for Haig. Uh, yeah, it's probably got a lot smellier in the headquarters. It smells like yeah. garlic and snails in here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, however, if you were to have asked Haig about this in the immediate aftermath, he would have said, no, 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 this is what I've wanted all along, because he tried to justify that it was his idea to have Fosh put in charge, because he was in control. So it's just kind of Haig justifying after the fact that, like, no, 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 I'm not mad. You're mad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was my idea. <laughs> He's really a miracle worker. It really is. Yeah. yeah. He changed the past. Yeah. There's even reports that, like, so he would always handwrite di his diaries entries and then type them up, like, the next day. Oh, what a fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. And then there, there, it, around this time period, like, when this is all happening, the his actual, like, diaries that we still have today, if you look, they're just, like, handwritten notes in the margins where he's, like, explaining himself even more after the fact. Just more being like, no, I swear I'm not mad. This was my idea. I swear I'm not upset, basically. Oh. Just throw the page away, you dipshit. Yeah. Or yeah. retype so, it. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have carbon dating back then. <laughs> He'd be a fan of editable tweets. Big time. Oh, yeah. He would have loved that. <laughs> um, more German offensives are coming, though. Uh, Operation Michael was not the only thing they had planned. The next one is going to come in the north in Flanders. This one has the explicit goal of um, 
cutting off British access to the channel ports. This is Operation Georgette. It is launched in April. And in a single month, the Germans retook everything that the Allies had gained in the last two years, including all of their success from the Battle of Passchendaele. In one month. Oh, Ouch. Man. Yeah. Ouch. Not good. It kind of feels this... like cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> this is going so great. <laughs> yeah, boys, we are going to the moon. Yeah. Oh, I meant hell. Yeah. I meant hell. Once again, Georgette is a smashing success as we see with them, you know, reversing all of the gains of Passchendaele. Uh, and Haig issues a famous order, which has come to be known as the Backs to the Wall speech. And I'm going to read out the whole thing. It's a little long, but it gives this is like Haig's direct words to his troops. You guys can tell me whether you think this guy is a good general or not, I guess. This is the, the whole order given out on April 11th to the British Army. To all ranks of the British Army in France and Flanders, three weeks ago today, the enemy began his terrific attacks against us on a 50-mile front. His objects are to separate us from the French, to take the channel ports, and destroy the British Army. In spite of throwing 106 divisions into the battle and enduring the most reckless sacrifice of human life, he has as yet made little progress towards his goals. We owe this to the determined fighting and self-sacrifice of our troops. Words fail me to express the admiration which I feel for the splendid resistance offered by all our ranks of our army under the most trying circumstances. Many amongst us now are tired. To those I would say that victory will belong to the side which holds out the longest. The French army is moving rapidly and in great force to our support. There is no other course open to us but to fight it out. Every position must be held to the last man. There must be no retirement. With our backs to the wall and believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight on to the end. The safety of our homes and the freedom of mankind alike depend on the conduct of each one of us at this critical moment. Signed, Douglas Haig, Field Marshal, Commander-in-Chief, British Armies in France. Kind of a word salad. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah, it basically says fight and die. I know you're tired, but fight and die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go back to my caviar now that I've sent out this order, but you guys stand and die in the field for this, God and writing, country. Writing this order has made me so tired. This is a sacrifice yeah. that I <laughs> give to the cause. He yeah. probably gave that speech at, what, 9.30 in the morning? And then went back, and he was just like, I am bushed. Oh, boy. I don't even know if I'll get my afternoon horse riding. Yeah. Does anyone have a Pims? I could just yeah. drink. Haig's <laughs> uh, order, though, uh, whether it was his fighting words that inspired his men or just the fact that, once again, the Germans um, overrun their supply lines, the expensive just kind of peters out even though they're able to keep all this land. There's going to be a third front, uh, German offensive in the south. This one comes within 40 miles of reaching Paris before it too begins to stall out. And this is the last gasp of the German army. Now the Allied leaders can finally see that the end might be in sight, but they still think probably 1920 or maybe early mid, or like late 1919 as possible end dates of the war. Once the American force could finally finally get their act together and get here oh still waiting still waiting uh, still waiting on the americans yeah. you can't you can't show up on time to a party you know we were inventing cool 
at that point. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were inventing coolness. That's going to yeah. take over the world in the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I wish that they were fighting Italy so we'd get some sweet glasses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bruce. Get in there, fella. Tie those shoes up. Get a jumping. Have a good time. Don't worry. Your friends over there all are going to sound like morons. Yeah. But they're still your friends nonetheless. Okay, Bruce? Get in there. So this is the end of the Kaiser Schlacht, the German spring offensives. Um, basically, they've, they've shot their shot. It didn't work. They came close a few times. But really... A lot. There's like some debate among historians over whether or not there was ever a realistic chance that they could do it. Um, I think they might have been able to like really t- turn it on its head if they had succeeded in the first one. The second and third, there's kind of really no shot. They missed the eyes. It went right over. They missed the, the eyes. Yeah. Now it, on July fourth, nineteen eighteen, um, there's a small action by the Australian arm, uh, armed forces at a village called Hamel. That is going to give Haig the blueprint for how to conduct the rest of the war. This is the first time that uh, artillery coordinates with the infantry. The tanks are working to support the infantry rather than just fighting on their own. Aircraft providing recon and attack support. All of this finally comes together in the perfect mix. And in just two hours, they achieve all of their main objectives at only 800 casualties. Stunning success. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we kind of touched on that before about how he's, like, integrating the tanks and the planes, but, like, that's the story of the 20th century is combined arms. And this is, like, when... This is combined arms becoming a thing. Yeah, Yeah. becoming a thing, which is is crazy. I mean, we still operate under the same, you know, tactics that they were figuring out now, air superiority. Yeah. You know, this is where and uh, this action in Hamel is where it like finally all comes together. Like Cambrai was much more the tanks kind of proving what they could do. Um, this is where it, all of it works in conjunction with one another. This tank idea seemed awesome when we were just using like a high school gymnasium, <laughs> very flat, yeah. waxy ground. <laughs> they seemed like they could really do some damage there. Yeah. And these <laughs> tanks now, by this point, they actually have guns on them. Like, more than just a machine gun. Now they have, like, small artillery pieces that they can fire. So they're really becoming, coming into their own. Nice. Do you you think when they were testing out the tanks in the gymnasium, they also did, like, the, uh, you know, you got the big parachute and you made the balloon mushroom and everyone sat inside? Yeah. But it was, like, made of, like, iron or something. (laughs) Now you can't get us. They were going to do, like, a uh, convex trench. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and uh, they tried it once. And for fun, they dropped a bomb on it, and everyone died. So <laughs> <sighs> Only 815. <laughs> Remarkable. The, 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 that was uh, the end of the Manchester Manchilds. <laughs> Favorite division. That's, that's where they met their grisly end. <laughs> uh, so the action that Hamel... Um, happened at the, around the same time that the uh, there was a joint French and American offensive that culminated with the Second Battle of the Marne. And these two things kind of showed to everyone that although Germany may hold out for a little longer, it no longer can win the war. It can fight to a draw, maybe, but it's lost all chance of winning. What's a draw in a war like this? Uh, the way World War I actually ends. <laughs> really? It's kind of a draw. Ah. Um, a draw at this point would have been 
basically if they're like do you agree to go back to 1914 borders sure and like that would have been a draw okay yeah um there's another uh offensive carried out by um this time the australians and the canadians near that city of amiens this is just a larger version of what had happened at hamel it leads to a single day advance of eight miles this would be the greatest single day gain for the british in the entire war <laughs> yeah eight miles you can walk that <laughs> And that is the largest military advance of the entire British Empire in World War One. Is that what uh, Eminem was singing about? Yes, he was Eight singing miles. about the Battle yes. of Amiens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's all thanks to like these bastard versions of Britain and France. Yeah, yeah, yeah Australia, the Trailer Canada. Park Boys, and Crocodile Dundee just being like, <laughs> "Let's go for a walk. Yeah. We'll get it done." Yeah, let's give yeah. give me smokes, Irwin. Give me yeah. smokes. <laughs> Uh, the German commander, Erich von Ludendorff, would call this the Black Day of the German Army because of how many German soldiers surrendered, which was very uncommon. And he offered his resignation to the Kaiser, which the Kaiser refused. And from here on out, the Allies are just pushing all across the front line. By the beginning of September, they had retaken all of the ground that they had lost in the German spring offensives. So the rest of the war following this battle at Amiens is what has come to be known as the Hundred Days. And so many of Haig's most ardent defenders, defenders will point to Amiens and the Hundred Days as proof of his military acumen, basically. So this, is the, this whole thing is where Haig's reputation as a good guy is burnished, whereas Salmon Passchendaele is where his reputation as a shithead has, came about. Oh, um, real quick, this day... Uh, this what was it? Black the Black Day of the German Army. The Black Day of the German Army. So you know, you have these the Germans, and you think they're like very strong willed and stuff like that. But all it, all it takes is just one trendsetter, like one guy named Hans turns around and goes, "I give up." <laughs> and the rest of the guys it? are like, "Yeah, maybe if Hans did it, it's, uh, you know, well, that's a good idea, Hans." I'm tired yeah. of having my ass squeezed. <laughs> Maybe I should go do what Hans is doing. Yeah, we can all do it. And then making like a new strong uh, movement of the of German realization that war is kind of stupid. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So that's we got a bunch of Hanses running around during the Black Day, surrendering to any Allied soldier they can find. Good for them. Can you push in our pink socks? <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, when the Battle of Amiens kicked off, Haig was golfing, so who knows if, this, if he actually had anything to do with it. Well, you know, what kind of golf? Was, was it mini golf? Was he keeping his eye? No. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And it's also, you know, if he's, is he playing with trench holes? It's an easy target, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, the divisions that are responsible for this push, um, they're all Dominion forces. It's Anzacs, it's Canadians, it's South Africans, it's Gurkhas, it's the Marines, like the U.S. Marines. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. Um, and although they're ostensibly under Haig's command, again, he was now answering to Foch as the overall commander. So the strategic decisions are being made by Foch, and then Haig is delegating all the tactical decisions to his subordinates. So Haig's kind of just a middleman. So maybe he doesn't deserve the reputation ever for being a military genius. He's just kind of there, man. He's just kind of there. Yeah. 
I mean, if you're golfing during your your biggest crowning moments, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, nah, not a great look. Yeah, not a great I look. mean, it's different for everyone. I mean, like George Bush was reading books to children during his upside crown down. You know, <laughs> yeah. when, when his, yeah. <laughs> when his when master his plan crown came policy off, yeah. came, came yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, his dad was puking on the Japanese minister <laughs> when his uh... <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's it's right. awesome. That's great. Legacy. And Reagan was eating jelly beans when the Berlin Wall came down. <laughs> there you go. Nice. And like Lyndon B. One... Johnson was pulling out his dick when he was president. Well, that's not fair. He always had his dick out. So yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine Reagan being like, lemony. <laughs> yeah, so Haig is kind of just watching all of this unfold. Um so the Allied success is encouraging more morale. Uh, the Germans are starting to lose their will to fight. Um, there's extensive rioting in Germany at this point. The German people have kind of realized that the war is lost, so they're wondering, why are we still fighting? We also don't have anything to fucking eat, so why are we doing this? Mm. Um, it's all going... Everything's going well for the Allies. Um, the war is finally winding down, thanks to tanks and airplanes. Yet, on November 4th, Haig is still offering to his commanders, hey, we have three cavalry divisions. Now that we're finally breaking through, don't you want to get the mounted lancers up front? Amazing. finally run over all these German boys. <laughs> it's like trying to convince a woman to do anal. It's like it never leaves your head, you know? You'd be Stop bringing like, it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You think of it once, it gets like, you talk about it when you first start dating, and then it's like six years later, you think maybe, no, stop (laughs) it. It doesn't belong. (laughs) Well, and also, I think I remember reading somewhere that, like, horses used to even be more, like, muscle boys than they are currently, but there's actually, like, whole... Breeds that were exterminated because of World War One because yeah. they were just using horses. Whole like all the best lines. horses in like Europe were killed during World War One. Mm-hmm. So like now they have the puny versions of their yeah. horses that they had. <laughs> they got oh. shitty off-brand Clydesdales. That sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I mean. There was horses going on the whole time. He was like, yeah, you know, if the boys are sacrificing, you horses are like eight boys. You need to sacrifice, too. Imagine, like, um, like Haig playing chess in his little captain's quarters there. Doesn't even know the rules. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the board doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, he has pawns on <laughs> every King which me. color. Yeah. And uh, someone comes in, slams the door. He's just like, sir, we've lost more. Uh, that flanks we're taking out. <laughs> he's just like, throw a horse at it, damn it. Throw another horse. <laughs> Don't fucking tell me that shit. Just throw a fucking horse, god <laughs> Knight me. <laughs> you see, this this is called a horse. Not only do we play chess with the horse piece, we use it on the battlefield. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, so this whole event this 100 days is kind of taking the all the allies by surprise um cuz they're just doing what they've always been doing but it's finally working and they're not really even they themselves are not even really sure why um there's this quote from uh one of the books there that kind of sums up this end of the war pretty perfectly the british and french allies did not purposely march to victory in the final 100 days with of war with a clearly elaborated or carefully constructed plan 
They stumbled along in their advance, sometimes blindly, often surprised to find that first pockets and then whole swaths of the German army crumbled. It was in a very real sense a victory, but one that took everyone, including Haig, by surprise. So they're like, whoa, we, we're kicking their ass. How is this happening? Like, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Because they also don't really f- realize just how bad everything is at home in Germany and that the soldiers are just kind of like set. They've lost their will to fight. The Kaiserschlacht, that was like all their morale, was, all their hopes were put on that one thing. And when it failed, they're just like, fuck it. What are we even doing here? Well, you the, know, sometimes you got to throw in the old red cabbage. Yes. <laughs> throw in the cabbage. <sighs> uh, on September 28th, the German Hindenburg line is first cracked and the Allies move past it. That was the line that they had retreated to in 1917. Um, and this is when the German High Command first begins to approach the Allied High Command about a ceasefire. They negotiate for a month as the Allies make more and more incremental advances before finally, on November 11th, at 11 a.m., the armistice is signed and comes into effect when the German army surrenders in the Compiègne Forest. Haig was there in the rail car when it happened. The Great War is over. It had devastated Britain and all of Europe. Worldwide, between 15 and 22 million people had died. Most of them, the vast majority, were soldiers on the front lines. There were another 23 million wounded. One-third of every single British household had a family member killed, wounded, or missing. They had suffered one million dead and two million wounded. That is just the British Empire. Damn. Damn. Yeah. Well, also, I just want to say one other thing about uh, the, the, the war ending. So it's the 11th hour of the 11th day, right? Isn't of the, it's the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Yeah. So it's basically agreed to, I think, on November 9th. And then it's like, it'll come into effect at this time. Like, that is when we put everything down yeah. and stop firing. Yeah, it mm. was a literal, like, hard out. It was a hard So, like, people end. were, like, fighting up until that you know, eleven o'clock. Mo- yeah, most of them weren't like really fighting. There were deaths. Like I, don't, I think there were very few deaths what on the eleventh. God, I would kill anyone who <laughs> killed me. Yeah, in that two-day period. Yeah, yeah. we're not even supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be shooting really high, <laughs> yeah. way over my head. Aim high. We're yeah. it's an agreement between us all. You're supposed to pretend your gun is jammed. Yeah, cry. There, about there are some crazy stories about the Armistice Day because, like Travis saying, like it's this. It's never happened before in military history where you have a static front line for four years and there's an agreed upon end of the war. Like today it's over. Yeah. Yeah. That's the day uh, Walt uh, Walt Disney arrived. Yeah. That was the day he showed up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hi, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Let's end it. I'm ready to shoot some motherfuckers in the face. (laughs) Oh, God. There are reports of like. Guys just, like, firing machine guns over the line, like, you know, like you're saying, like, aiming high yeah. up until the moment it ends. And then the moment it ends, there's, like, this eerie silence. And then it just, everyone in the trench on both sides just starts fucking cheering and, like, yeah. celebrating. And, like, they're walking across the line, talking to their Germans, like, counterparts. It's, like, this very surreal moment in all of world history. Hmm. Right. And then also, in the beginning of the war, I think we didn't talk about that whole soccer match that may or may not have happened. That is also very weird. The Christmas yeah, th- Day soccer match. It happened in like two places, and that's yeah. it. And it's kind of gotten blown out of proportion. But it's a nice story, so I understand why. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yeah. 
Do you it's know about Christmas the soccer match? Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen some. Uh, I, I, I saw it on Reddit a long time ago, so I assumed it was fake. But yeah, it's one of those things where it definitely something definitely happened to like it, but they're not sure exactly. It's romanticized. They played pinball. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck, <laughs> they get that. pinball machines. Yeah, they're playing pinball. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, the war is over, uh, but we ha- still have much more to cover. Well, not much more. We still have one more to cover with our our boy Dougie Haig. Because I'm guessing he survived the war. He's in, alive. In the he comfort of his <laughs> log cabin. Uh, he had dead it's, bodies. He's still doing all right. He had a wrist injury on that chip out of the uh, the sand trap. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, and it. And when I put my club down, I, I did it in a weird way, and it hit a hangnail that's been there for weeks. <laughs> so I, th- I feel I feel as though it might be there longer. I must go to the hospital. <laughs> so I guess next episode we'll be debating how many of those uh, millions and millions of deaths run uh, Higgs. Yes. So we're going to talk about his life and career after the war, and then we'll also be a lengthy discussion about his legacy, because it has shifted and changed so much since his death. Interesting. Yes. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, well, thank you, Connor, for bringing us through World War One, the most thorough uh, we have done on World War One, which uh, has been great. I've learned a lot. Well, thank you. Yeah. yeah love I, World War One. Yep. Not, you, didn't want to be there, but love reading about it. Love it. <laughs> yeah, I love that war. Yeah. You know, when you uh, say, oh, 11th, it's the 11th on the 11th day, all that shit, and it just everyone stops, and they shoot, I... I imagine the theme song from the movie Willow coming on. A beautiful tune. And I'm only reminded by this because I see this Disney Plus is doing a show about Willow. Mm. And there's something about that music that screams peace. (laughs) Unlike any other score I've heard in my entire (laughs) life. Screams peace. Screaming peace at the top of its uh, penny whistle. Uh, So I would like to think that they played the Willow soundtrack. That's where I'm going. Uh, Unlike... Maybe you're the we eventually already spoiled this last episode. Unlike your next roast, Flight of the Valkyries, which does not scream peace. It does not. <laughs> no, opposite. Opposite. It screams leather chaps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you've been listening to Roast Mortem Cast. You were supposed to be listening because you belong here. Uh, hit us up on patreon.com slash roastmortemcast. Give us a, you know, if you listen to the show, I mean, I... I don't know what it's like to have three free things handed to you all the time. It must be but, great, dude. Yeah, yeah, it must be sick. So, you know, divvy up. Uh, we have a merch <laughs> store. What else do we have? Uh, we have a give Mike money portal. Right. Mike is still in the picture. He's just busy. He's dealing with things. And we Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. Um, let's see. Yeah, Danky Shane. Dankershan, as they said on the Western Front when it was quiet. Dankershan! Dankershan! Bye.